All right, kids, come on up. Come on up, find somewhere to sit. Bring somebody with you if you'd like. Good to see you. Come on over, scoot on over this way, guys. All right, here we go. Good to see everyone. All right, I need a volunteer. Who would like to, let's see. You want to come up and volunteer? Okay, why don't you scoot back just a bit. Okay, can you tell everyone your name? Corbin Ronald Matthews. There you go, Corbin Ronald Matthews. Thanks for volunteering. Okay, Corbin, I have for you today, I have a dollar bill, but I'm not just going to give it to you. You have to earn this dollar bill, Okay. You have to do something very specific in order to get this dollar. All right? I'll give you the dollar if you do five jumping jacks. Good. Did he do it? Yeah. All right. So there you go. You're in the dollar. Good job, buddy. Thanks. You can have a seat. All right. Now, was that dollar bill, was that a gift to Corbin? Was it just a free gift that I gave him? No, it wasn't a free gift. He had to earn it, right? I didn't just give it to him. He had to do something to earn that. It wasn't free. Corbin had to earn it, right? He had to do just the right thing in order to get that dollar, right? And he did it. So good job to you, right? But that's how some people approach a relationship with God. They try to work and earn God's blessing. They try to do it that way. They think if they work hard enough, And if they do enough good things, and if they do all the right things, then they'll be saved from their sin. They'll have a relationship with God. Now, is that what the Bible teaches us? No, it's not, is it? The Bible tells us that salvation is a free gift of God, right? Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and then he rose to life again, right? He, Jesus, earned your salvation for you so that you don't have to do it. Right? You don't have to work for forgiveness of sin or work for eternal life. God has done it. Jesus has done it for you. He's done the work necessary. So do you know how you can come into a right relationship with God? By placing your faith in Jesus Christ. By believing Him. It's through faith in Him. By believing in who He is and by believing in what He has done for you. Right? Do you know how you can have forgiveness of sin? By believing in Jesus. Do you know how you can have life that will last forever and have great blessing, eternal life, by believing in Jesus, right? That's how it is. So Corbin had to work to earn that dollar. He had to do something very specific, but you don't have to work to come into a relationship with God. God grants you salvation for free as a free gift to you. So then your right standing with God isn't based upon what you do, Right? Your right standing before God is based solely on Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And you simply come to him through faith, through trusting in him. So you don't have to work to earn your, uh, God's love for you. He gives it to you freely, and it's a, a blessing. It's unchanging. It will last forever and ever. So Pastor Jeremy's going to come. He's going to introduce us to the book of Galatians, which talks about these things more. So you can go back and sit down, but listen as Pastor Jeremy comes and preaches. Thank you. Pastor Jeff, we are in the book of Galatians, if you would turn there with me. Today I'll just be doing an overview or introduction to the entire 
book, and then in the next several weeks until uh, early June, we'll start working our way into it, and then we'll take a break for the summer psalms. If you remember, we do 10 psalms a summer, so we'll be doing Psalm 21 to 30 in June, July, and beginning of August, and then we'll get back to Galatians after that. So why Galatians? Well, I decided to do it when we were preaching through Acts, and we got to Acts chapter 15. If you remember, Acts 15 was the Jerusalem council where the first major dispute uh, in the church took place over whether or not you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. That's what the entire book of Galatians is about. And so as I was studying Acts, I thought, oh, this could be helpful. And then I also thought, I want to make sure, and I've been here just over six years, that our church is kind of centered on the central thing, and that being the gospel, that we don't lose sight of the core reality of what a Christian is. It is Christ and him crucified and faith alone in him is that which brings us to God. And particularly as we strive as a people to focus on our ongoing growth in Christ. We preach the law. We preach repentance. We preach that if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you continue to walk in the flesh, if you continue to walk in the works of the flesh, Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom. So we preach that. And yet that comes from Belief in Christ. The only freedom from that is Christ. And so I thought Galatians would be helpful. And then, as I've said often and, and want to say again, Galatians is very unique. One of the commentator, co- commentators calls it a bad-tempered book. <laughs> uh, Jerome says that one way to translate Galatians 3.1, Oh, you foolish Galatians, is my dear idiots. Another said, or Jerome also said, when he reads Paul in Galatians, he hears thunder. And so I want to continue to impress on your consciences the need for this kind of pastoral tone from time to time. When there is no fear of God in our churches anymore, when we only preach a very cheap kind of grace that how Paul loves the Galatians, these dear people, is still needed in the church. And then this book is a book that has changed the world. (laughs) In the book of Acts, as I said, the first problem, the first major conflict within the Christian church took place in, in this area. And this letter was written as a response to it. It changed the Roman world at that time. During the Reformation, when the Christian church, the Roman Catholic church at the time, had completely lost their way regarding the gospel, was emphasizing the need for works. It was this book, through Martin Luther, that changed the world. 
Luther called this the epistle of Galatians is my epistle. I have married myself to it. It is my wife. It is my Katie. Katie was his name of his wife. He called this his Katie. (laughs) I don't know how his wife felt about that. But it was this book that caused him to preach this gospel of grace again. To deny that we bring anything to the table. That man is saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Not by works. It was this that taught him that. The nation that we have is a result of that. This book has literally changed the world twice. So that's why I thought it'd be fun to preach. So this morning, though, I want to just give you an intro to it. And to do so, I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 16. I'm going to read 15 to 21, but we're going to mainly, after giving you an intro to who the author is and when it was written and to whom it was written, we're going to just look at the central theme of the book, and verse 16 explains that. So let me read Galatians 2, 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet even we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, teach us now your grace that we might be saved, that we might give you all the glory. And so God, help us to realize, to to truly know that we are not saved by works, but only through faith alone in Christ alone. And then grant us faith now as we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So the overall purpose of this book, Timothy George, one of the more modern commentators, says Galatians is a book about God. It's about God's grace, God's sovereignty, God's purpose, God's gospel. That is his good news of justification by faith in a crucified Savior. That's Galatians. It is a book about the good news of justification by faith in a crucified Savior. So keep that term, justification, in your mind. We'll get back to it. So the purpose then is to glorify God in defending the doctrine of justification by faith. Doctrine matters. In Sunday school, I think Mark Fetzer said, the most important thing about you as a human is what you believe about God. And in this book, The main thing to believe about God is the only way that he counts you as righteous and acceptable is by faith in Christ alone, period. That's what you should believe about God. So we are here then in the book of Galatians preaching what Martin Luther called the most important doctrine of Christianity. This is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Just this. So this book then is about how can you be right with God? 
What is salvation? So that's what we'll be looking at. Let me give you a little bit of background on the book. The author is named in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul. This is the Apostle Paul that we met in Acts. He, this book is unique in that he gives just about two chapters of autobiographical information. And so we'll learn a lot about Paul. He's the author. He wrote it to a group of churches and then meant for wider distribution beyond that. But this is the only book or the only letter in the New Testament written not to an individual, not to a city or to a church in a city, but to a region. Galatia was a region. So we have a map, I think. There it is. So if you remember, this is a map of Paul's first missionary journey that we use during Acts. So this letter was written to this Asia Minor area. If you see Galatia kind of going a little bit vertically or on a slant there, uh, that's the area and the churches that Paul writes this letter back to after his first missionary journey, before the council in Jerusalem, likely, to address this issue of whether or not you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the Jewish law in order to be a Christian along with faith. Now, this area is rather unique. You can take that down. Uh, the term Galatia is the Greek transliteration for Gaul, the Gauls. You've heard that name before, probably. These are the Germanic tribes um, in Central Europe that spread out from there and conquered much of the European world the British Islands, and even down here. They came down here several hundred years before the time of Christ. They were a restless, warlike people, and they conquered this area and settled it. And it was named after them. Uh, When Rome became the world power, they came under Roman control. In AD 25, Caesar Augustus, Augustus Caesar, made them into a Roman province and divided it north and south Galatia. One of the questions in modern minds is, did Paul write this to the people of northern Galatia or southern Galatia? It really doesn't matter. Uh, Seems most likely that this is one of Paul's earliest letters written just after his first missionary journey, because the church in Jerusalem had Jewish Christians who were of the belief that in order to be a Christian, you needed to have faith in Christ, plus become Jewish, plus get circumcised, plus keep the Jewish ceremonial law. Some of those people, if you remember in the book of Acts, went to those places from Jerusalem that Paul had planted churches and began to teach there after Paul had left, That if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to go to heaven, you have to be circumcised. And so Paul writes this letter responding to that uh, false teaching, that heresy, that lie. And so he's planted these churches, reading Acts 13 and 14, and writes this shortly, shortly afterwards. So let me talk a bit about the book as a whole. It is a letter sometimes called an epistle. It follows a typical Greek letter writing pattern. It has an opening, verses 1 to 5. 
Typical Greek letters have a thanksgiving afterwards. You'll see this in other of Paul's letters where he gives thanks to them. He doesn't give thanks to the Galatians. That should give you something of a hint of what's coming. He typically would include that normal pattern, but he breaks it here. Then he'll have the body of the letter where he gives the main point. That's in chapters 1 through the end of chapter 4. Justification by faith. And then he'll move from what is truth to how to live the truth. Life, ethics, morality. Chapters 5 and 6 before a closing. So here is a simple outline of the letter. That's the next slide. All right, so you have the history. He gives some autobiographical information in order to prove that he had been sent with the gospel and that this gospel wasn't man's creation but came from God. And then you'll have the doctrinal section, chapters 3 and 4, maybe. Theology, justification by faith. And then the last two chapters are the ethical section, morality, how do I live by the Spirit? Pretty simple, straightforward, so that's what we'll be looking at. But one of the realities is Paul wasn't just following a letter-writing form. This is pastoral. He writes with great care and intentionality. He is very careful in his argument. He knows these people. They are very dear to him. This is a very, very, very personal letter. All right, so that's the letter. That's the background. That's the all... uh, That's the outline. Let me talk briefly about the problem. So the long-standing historical problem is that of these Jewish Christians who couldn't believe that the Gentiles could be included in the people of God without, without also becoming obedient to the law. They had to keep Moses' law. They had to become circumcised. They had to keep the dietary laws. They had to keep the temple laws. They had to keep the moral laws. And so in order to be a Christian, in order to go to heaven, you have to be circumcised. You have to observe the dietary laws. And so that's what Paul is addressing. We've already mentioned this. But let me read Acts eleven two to 3. Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcised party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. This was breaking the Mosaic law. Uncircumcised believers were forbidden for circumcised believers. And so how could Peter be a Christian? How could Peter be a true follower of God? So those folks are going up to these churches, these Gentiles, and troubling them greatly. They had believed in Christ. They had come to faith. They had repented of their sins, and now they're hearing, you're not saved. Unless. So this is Paul's battering. Another way to say it is, you've heard the term legalism, right? So typically we'll talk about Galatians and Paul is battling the problem of legalism. Now legalism is one of those scary words used in the church that has basically become devoid of all meaning. Kind of like love. When you call everything legalism that you don't like, then 
nothing's legalism anymore. And so typically in our day, Christians use legalism to label anything that they don't like. So a church that preaches that you need to repent and obey is legalistic. A church that preaches Galatians chapter 5 and 6, the ethical section at all, with any kind of the force of Paul, would called legalistic in our day. And so we struggle with what is legalism? What is legalism? Well, think of it this way. Legalism is lying about the gospel and about salvation, but not directly. Legalism is diluting and corrupting the gospel by adding something to it that doesn't properly belong to it. So some of you grew up in actually very legalistic churches where man's laws became elevated above God's. One of the main ones, skirt length. Or you couldn't even wear skirts as a woman. It had to be, or you couldn't wear pants. It had to be skirts. Maybe it was you can't be a Christian and drink any alcohol or dance. And... Most of you shouldn't dance. But those kind of things became the dividing line between who was a good Christian and and who was even questionable that they were a Christian. Or it's so harshly emphasizing the moral law of God without hardly any mention of the gospel that the tenor of the church is you get to heaven by your works. You get to heaven by what you do or what you don't do, not by faith in Christ alone. So this is what Paul is addressing. Now, I got to say this. Oddly in our day, the main problem isn't legalism. There are legalists and there are legalistic churches, but those are not the most prominent in our day. The most prominent in our day is not adding to Christ's law-keeping, but cheapening grace. It's the opposite ditch, sometimes called antinomianism. It's refusing to call people to repentance. It's, it's refusing to say anything but grace, 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 grace. <clears throat> so look at the book of Galatians with me. Look at chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 3 and 4 basically contain no commands. It's all just truth. It's all just doctrine. It's all just gospel. He has some biting words, some sarcastic words. But there's no do this, don't do that in chapters 3 and 4. It's all Jesus died and you are saved by faith alone. It's just doctrine. And then chapters 5 and 6 change. There's no doctrine. There's no theology. It's almost all ethics. It's all do this and don't do that. So some of the most famous verses in Galatians are chapter 5, verses 16 to 24, 25. You have this list of works of the flesh beginning in verse 19. Followed by, then, the fruit of the Spirit. 
And the implication is, if you believe the doctrine in chapters 3 and 4, then you can't keep walking according to the flesh. You must not. If you do, you're just not a Christian. Or if you believe the doctrine of justification by faith, the outworking of it in your life is that you'll live by the fruit of the Spirit. This fruit will become evident in your life. And if you aren't, it's just that you don't have Christ. And my contention is the problem in the church is today aren't denying chapters 3 and 4, but refusing to preach with any kind of Paul-like emphasis chapters 5 and 6. But we'll get to that. So let me do this then before getting into verse 16. My third pastoral experience, when I was in college, right after college, I did a year internship at a church. And then after that, I was a part-time youth pastor in Marathon, Wisconsin for two years. Then I went to seminary. And in my second year of seminary, one of my professors was also a pastor of a church, and I became the the evangelism pastor of that church. And that church was what you might call a church-as-business model. It was all about church growth. That's all that it was. It was very mechanical. They had this very neat and tidy mission statement, core values, five, ten-year goals and strategy. There wasn't a worship service, but a worship experience. Uh, Fog, lights, right? The only people allowed on stage were the people who were the beautiful, the very, very well-spoken. The senior pastor said repeatedly, we are not shepherds, we are herders. Okay? I've told you this before. Behind his desk, he had a sign. I can't remember if it was on the desk or hanging on the wall. And the sign read, no one, no one gets to see the wizard. Seriously. This was the church. And after a few months in that church, I had a crisis. Not because I thought what he was doing was wrong, because I was thinking, that's what you do as a pastor. And I stink at it. I'm awful. It began to seem to me just all manipulation. Sales. They're consumers. And if we have a good enough product, they'll come. That's it. Salvation is a purchase. And that's it. No shepherding, no care. Yet when you come to the Bible book of Galatians, it's very different. Contrary. They're not herders. They're shepherds that smell like the sheep. They're church fathers and church mothers. These real people with real lives that pastors and elders and church fathers and mothers get into the slop with. It's really beautiful and it's agonizing and it's Wonderful and it's awful. And all that to say, when you're working with the people, you have to know them very well. And you have to decide 
from conversation to conversation, from Sunday to Sunday, do they need more Galatians chapter 3 and 4? Do they need more Galatians chapter 5 and 6? Do they need more of Paul's tone in Philippians, which is all kind and happy? Or do they need to be called dear idiots? Parents have to do this. Especially with teens. Who am I getting today? What tone do I use today? What words do I use today? What problem do I deal with? What hill do I have to die on today? There's an art to pastoring. You have to figure out the feed mixture. You have to figure out tone. And you have to know the people well enough to know which one is needed. You have to listen. You have to look at body mannerisms. You have to figure out the problem that the person's coming to you for counsel probably isn't the problem, but there's another problem that you have to listen carefully to to figure out what the real problem is. And you have to know that when you address the real problem, they ain't going to want to listen to it because they didn't come to you with that problem. They came to you with that problem. So then you got to talk to them for another hour about that problem before you can earn enough credit to go to the real problem. And then they still don't want to listen to you. That's pastoring. That's what Paul's doing in this letter. He's figuring out how do I pastor these people? How do I shepherd them? How do I father them? And so, as we go through this letter, as I've said to you many times, can we please have the faith to let pastors sound like Paul? And can you please have the faith to make life miserable for those pastors who refuse to sound like Paul ever? They'll preach the entire book of Galatians and never, ever, ever once sound anything like Paul And so, Galatians is heavy metal. Most people preach it like it's R&B. Galatians is thunder, and they'll preach it like it's a bluebird day. Galatians is a fatherly admonition behind closed doors that stings, and the preacher's Preach it with a lisp wearing skinny jeans. To really frustrate you, Galatians is like dark stout beer. And they preach it like it's a wine cooler. Do you know what I'm getting at here? So do we have the faith for this book? Right? Right? Do we have the faith for this book? Do, are we Christians? That's what we want to get at. But the main thing in the book is justification by faith. So look at chapter 2, verse 16. I'm going to read it. And let's, let's begin to see the central thing, central reality in this. of How, how do we come to God? What brings us to God? Yet we know that a person, so the we there are the Jews. He's countering these Jewish Christians who are saying, you need to keep the law in order to be saved. And yet he's 
looking at them and saying, the history of the Jews is not keeping the law. What's wrong with you? They have hundreds of years in the Old Testament of this one record of abject failure. And now you want to go to the Gentiles and say the only way to be saved is to keep the law? Are you nuts? So the we there is that. Yet we know, even we know, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. First time he says it. So we also have believed, we Jews who have the law, we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Second time. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Third time. One sentence, actually in the middle of one sentence, he says the same thing three different ways that we might get it. So you've heard this word justified. We know that a person is not justified. We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. By works of the law will no one be justified. Okay. This is the core of biblical, true, evangelical Christianity. This is it. This word. This is the word that defines how sinners get accepted by God. This is the word that is the difference between hell and heaven, between being under God's wrath and being accepted by him. This is it. This is it. So what does it mean to be justified? We use this word. We use the word just. We have courtrooms and judges and people having to give a defense. This is that kind of language. It pictures God in the courtroom of heaven. Standing before is a condemned sinner. He is in Adam. She is in Adam. Nature of sin. Condemned. He or she has spent a life sinning against God. Condemned. And God in this courtroom of heaven declares that person not guilty, but righteous. How? Justified, legal, how can that happen? How can that justified legal declaration be given to somebody who isn't in nature or in works? How? That's the question in this verse. The negative, the minor is not by works of the law. There is no way that God in heaven will declare you not guilty, clear, righteous by the works of the law. 
Well, what does that mean? What does it mean, works of law? I think you know this, right? Well, one is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. You will never be declared legally by God to be righteous by keeping the Ten Commandments, by loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, by loving your neighbor as yourself. Also, by works of the law, he intends the law of Moses, the ceremonial law, the law regarding the ceremonies. You can eat this, you can't eat that. This day is for that, that day is for that. You have to be circumcised, on and on. So, everybody knows we've been created by God. Everybody knows you're going to stand before him in judgment. And everybody knows... In of themselves, you feel the weight of it, that you are evil. How can you who are evil, how can you have the guilt and stain of Adam's sin, how can you who continue to sin in heart and in mind and in thought and in deed and in word and in action and in not doing what you should do, about anything about you, it's not by you, it's not by what you do. It's not about anything about you. So if that is denied, by works of the law denied, how? Well, that's the major. This is the, the positive. By faith alone in Christ Jesus. That's it. What is faith? Faith is coming to believe the truth about who Jesus is as the Son of God made man, coming to understand that he lived without sin, he died on the cross in our place, that he rose from the dead. So you come to a cognitive agreement that that's true, that you accept it, and you bring it home as your own, and then that you come to entrust your life to it, that it is your trust. You have to understand it. You have to accept it. And you have to trust it. You have to put your full weight on it. So, I've, I've told you the story before, but, and I'm not old enough to have forgotten that I've told you the story before. <laughs> I just looked at Terry there. You don't do that, by the way. Um, and when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, he fainted, and he spent the next several months, and I don't mean this to shame in my dad, but he, he was freaking out. He didn't know what to do. He was young, 50, 51, healthy. And I was in seminary, and I was thinking about this. And I was full of theology. And I had heard what Mark said. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. And so I said, Dad, let's read Grudem's Systematic Theology together. <laughs> like, don't ever do that with somebody just diagnosed with cancer. That's not good pastoral idea. But it worked. And one of the sad things we discovered is that my dad had spent his entirety in 
life in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, Wednesday night. And he didn't know what justification by faith was. And when we read about justification by faith, it just changed him from very fearful to peaceful. From unsure of what he should do to, it's going to be fine. Why? Because he was accepted by God only by faith. By Christ's work, not by his own. So faith is that which connects us to Christ, grabs hold of him, having lost all hope in yourself. You cannot be a Christian until you realize that you have nothing to offer to God. And that all you bring to God is sin. And that there's no good little boy, good little girl that goes to heaven. That I have nothing. That God is displeased with me and I am displeased with me. So who will get me to God? How can I get to God? I know I'll give an account before him. I know I'm guilty. I know I deserve hell. What am I going to do? It's faith in Christ. That's it. Faith is saying to God, we know we have nothing in ourselves and that all of our dependence is that Christ is present with us to save us. And the only way Christ is present with you is faith. If you don't have faith in Christ, then he is not present with you. He is present. He is the Lord over all, but he is not present with you. He is not covering your sins. You are not credited, clothed in his righteous, holy life. And so this verse is that verse which has changed the world twice. It's the most gloriously clear explanation of the way of salvation, not by works, but by faith in Christ alone. The only way that you can have peace with God is through faith in Christ, and not at all by anything in you. This verse alone is our ultimate comfort in all of our miseries. Because your life is going somewhere. Your current darkness, your current distress will be gone. And at the end, how will you find acceptance with God? Our faith is a very fragile thing, isn't it? These folks had the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to him for some time, a couple of years, and immediately upon leaving, their faith just fractures and goes after things other than Christ. Isn't our faith very weak and fragile? And so we need God's word to stand upon. And God's word declares very simply, repeatedly from beginning to end, we have salvation if we have Christ and the only way we have Christ is by faith. And that's it. Isn't that wonderful?
Isn't that glorious? It's not you. It's not your stature. It's not your prominence. It's not your parents. It's not your church. It's not your bank account. It's not how many toys you have. It's not how gifted you are with a needle and a thread. It's not your education level. It's not your service in the church. It's not where you sit. It's not if you're personal friends with the pastor. It's by faith in Christ alone. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing, even have faith alone in your Son alone. We are very prone to wander. Lord, we feel it prone to leave the God who's loved us, prone to find justification, find atonement in anything and everything but your Son. And so, God, attach us to your Son. May everything else lose its luster. May everything else appear as rubbish, as gross, as smelly, as awful in comparison with faith alone and your Son alone. And so, Give us the heaves where we entrust ourselves for acceptance with you, anything but Christ. And help us to fight for faith in your son alone, to take all our care of what others think about how we're handling the worries and fears to Christ, to take all of our care of what others think about how we're handling this or that to Christ. Because it's only through him that we're justified. And so God, please teach us to us. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. It says in Galatians 2.16 that they know something, so we must know something. And what we must know is that all of our righteousness, all of the good that we do, and we do good, cannot get you to God. It is accounted as filthiness before a holy God. So even if you were able to keep the law perfectly, it would not get you to God. The law cannot get you to God. So you must know that. And knowing that then, you must know the second thing, that Christ alone can get you to God. And if you have not Christ, you have not God. May all who walk by This, justification by faith, knowing that our earthly differences between each other are nothing, but only that we are new creations in Christ, may peace and mercy be on you. And all who have the faith of Abraham, faith in the promised Son of God, may no one cause you trouble this week, but only that you might suffer for Christ. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.